People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Hello, I'm Chris Nicklin with this week's People of Note. Our guest is the celebrated writer and poet Mandla Langer, a category winner in the 2009 Commonwealth Writers' Prize for his novel Lost Colours of the Chameleon. Storytelling was something Mandla excelled at from a young age. But like so many of his contemporaries, he was sucked into the struggle against apartheid that led to a spell in prison, exile, even enlisting in the ANC's armed wing. With the advent of democracy, Mandler was able to continue his writing career on South African soil, his latest work being the sequel to Nelson Mandela's best-selling memoir, Long Walk to Freedom. Entitled Dare Not Linger, it's the definitive account of Mandela's years as president of the newly democratic South Africa. Mandler, before we talk about the book, I'm interested to know why you joined the armed struggle against apartheid. Despite having strong feelings on many matters, writers typically have a fairly gentle disposition, or am I overly generalizing? No, I think there's truth to what you're saying. I don't think that I so much joined the struggle as the struggle joined me, or Ah. matters (laughs) just pushed my feet to that direction because my father was a minister of religion and and my mother was his helpmate as it were mm-hmm. but i had brothers and uh, sisters who were quite aware of what was going on inside the country and who were in opposition to what was happening in south africa one of my brothers of course finally grew up and became the country's chief justice Mm-hmm. Pius Langa, yes. And one of my other brothers, Ben, was killed in 1984. By At the time when he was killed, we thought that it was through the machinations of the regime. It transpired much later that it was also mm-hmm. in collusion with some of the people who had been my own comrades you know, what, in the camps. What drove you personally, though, to, to resort to arms? So many things happened. I remember the cataclysmic shooting of people at Sharpville. Mm-hmm. For me, it just spelled out that there was no way people were going to succeed in talking sense to the regime of the day. There had to be some form of coercion. And joining MK, joining Mkondowesizwe, joining the ANC seemed to be the best way forward. And of course, Nelson Mandela, the subject of your new book, was a co-founder of the ANC's armed wing. Although the government did its damnedest to obliterate him from the public consciousness, was it still possible for Mandela to be an inspiration in those far-flung military camps he spent time in? Mm. I think one of the remarkable things about Mandela's disappearance from the public domain was that that disappearance actually made him all the more visible, all the more real. And so we sang songs about Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. I remember I belonged to a platoon called Mbelebele, which was Platoon 3 in Malange in Angola. And we had people who were composers, very good composers of music. And one of them has come up with songs which are still being sung today about mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela. And so he stood head and shoulders above all the leaders of our liberation movement. Why was that, do you think? I think because of his selfless stances. When he became a volunteer-in-chief mm-hmm. against the unjust laws in 1952, 
at a time when South Africa had just come out of the nightmare of the establishment of the National Party. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, for me, was a very, very brave gesture. Because if you think back, the 1950s were the most brutal time, and the police were not just treating people with kid gloves. There would be shootings much, much later. So he came out of that, and that was, for me, a show of courage. And, of course, his speech at the dock when he knew that he was actually fated to be hanged when he said that for his convictions, he's prepared to die. Yeah, it was a very, very defined statement. Absolutely. Those were measures that made us really believe and see Mandela as being outstanding. Now, Mandela, for listeners who don't know, I think it's important to emphasize that the new book, Dare Not Linger, as odd as this might sound, is effectively a literary collaboration with Mandela about his years as president, isn't it? Yes. By the time he had passed on, he had written something upward of 70,000 words. Wow, 70,000 words. That's a book in itself. That's a book in itself. It was scattered all over the place, and Zelda Lichranz, who was his right-hand person, as it were, she then collated the material, typed it out, He's got a very ornate handwriting. Yes. She then made it into a manuscript. But what was important was for these words to be made to live. Mm. I was going to say, couldn't that 70,000-word manuscript simply have been published? It would have effectively been right out of the horse's mouth. It would have been right out of the horse's mouth, but without context, I think the words would have been lost. I see. So it would have been like a lyric in music which is just standing out there in its own without any accompaniment. Mm. And so my job was to supply that accompaniment to ensure that the music leave the words, <laughs> you know, stood on their own. And I was told to make the book sing, and ah. I think I tried to <clears throat> do that. I know you also had access to all sorts of scraps of paper on which... Mandela had scribbled notes while events were unfolding. Were these generally cryptic or reasonably helpful in compiling a definitive account Mm. of Mandela as president? Yes and no. On the one hand, some of the material that, you know, the marginal notes he made, let's say, on his diaries, etc., could only be deciphered by himself, by (laughs) a person who was very, very closely linked to his style and to his way of thinking. But I believe that we did, I did my best to collate, to make sure that the different disparate uh, pieces of information that was also in the archives and also in the minutes and also in various accounts by people that knew him helped to build a narrative that can be readable and understood. Sure. Mandela was a compulsive <coughs> diary writer when he was in prison, but I find it extraordinary that he was able to maintain any form of dedicated note-taking during what was, by all accounts, a very hectic presidency. Mm. Well, you take a look at the man's life. You take a look at his sense of discipline. He was a person that believed in certain rituals, in certain things that had to be done. By the time he woke up in the morning, he pretty much knew exactly how his day was going to unfold. So he does, he did factor in that moment when he would uh, reflect on what had taken place 
and put it on paper. And so essentially it boiled down to his uh, self-instilled discipline. Absolutely. And man, the long walk to freedom was replete with a lot of Mandela's aphorisms and homespun philosophies, many of which are still regularly quoted. Is there any more of this in Dare Not Linger? Yes, in Dare Not Linger, Mandela was, of course, uh, dealing with his presidency. He was dealing with a time when he was seeing to the fulfillment of a dream that he had had when he had been in prison to establish, to build this edifice, this house, this foundation towards a democratic South Africa. And so he does speak about a lot of some of his own frustrations. He speaks about some of his own disappointments, but also, you know, moments of exaltation and joy Mm -hmm. at certain things succeeding, at seeing, let's say, breakthroughs. For instance, when he was both uh, irritated and, uh, I think, made to feel how difficult it was to rule, to be a leader, when he had to broker the peace between the warring factions in the DRC, the Democratic Republic mm-hmm. of the Congo, where he then saw that when he had been in prison, he was dealing with people that were like-minded. Even when he came out and had conversations and debates and fights, let's say, with the National Party people, the declares, mm-hmm. etc., he could understand the logic, perhaps, of their resistance. But when he came to certain imponderables like the guerrillas of Kabila and also the intransigence of people, he saw that the battle towards a rehabilitation of Africa was going to be long and hard. The, the reality of intractable dis- uh, differences. Absolutely. Amanda, let's hear your first piece of music, please. What do you have for us? My first piece of music is Mirema Keba and Nina Simone singing I Shall Be Released. For me, I think that's one of the definitive songs of the liberation struggle. It's also instructive that it's being sung by two very, very important women who brooked no-nonsense and who really, really made their mark on the world in terms of giving respect, making sure that women were respected, women were taken seriously, and women were released. Let's hear it then.
That was Miriam Makaba and Nina Simone with I Shall Be Released, the choice of my guest on People of Note, the writer and poet Mandla Langer. Now, Mandla, Nelson Mandela is probably one of the most written about public figures of the past century. Given the huge wealth of knowledge that there is about him, were you able to reveal anything new? Yes, I think that there was a lot that was new in terms of Mandela's life, Mandela's years as the president of South Africa. A lot also dealt with his relationship to the people that were part of the African National Congress because it must be remembered that even though we have had a very peaceful transition from apartheid to democracy, there were people living within the ANC who did not, for instance, were not very happy with the way Mandela went about with the whole process of of, uh, reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So the book does go into some of those debates, some of those fights he had with specific people, and that's very, I think, instructive. Mandela was in his mid-70s when he became president. Was there anything to suggest in his writings that he didn't exactly relish the job and was essentially doing it because duty called? He was single-minded. I think that's one thing that will come out also in the book. You remember that in prison, he had seen what had happened in other jurisdictions where 
the transitions had been handled incorrectly or wrongly. In India, for instance, he had read up on the exploits or the travails or the problems that were faced by Jawaharlal Nehru, the transition in 1947, and the lives that were lost there. The battles, the problems that were faced by the people in the Philippines, the Hawks, who were trying to dislodge a very, very brutal regime. So he was very aware of the price to pay, and for him, the single-mindedness was to make sure that this fate does not befall South Africa. And so he gave himself five years. He said, if I agree to becoming the president of the republic, these are the things that need to be done. The, we need to have these chapter nine institutions, for instance, to make sure mm. that there are these threats, there are these supports. Mm. So he had a sense of duty about being president rather than a real burning ambition to be president. No, he was very reluctant to becoming president. He wanted to do things to be a guide, you know, behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But of course, there was a need. And I think that it's very important that we recognize this because he came in at a time when there was a need for an authoritative person to take charge in South Africa. And there was no one with that moral stature. Mm. And a person with, with great credibility. Absolutely. So he came and, uh, well, of course, the phrase, come at the man, come at the hour. Yeah. What about the assertion, though, that Mandela was a mere figurehead in the first democratic administration and that his deputy, Thabo Mbeki, actually ran the government? I think even Thabo Mbeki himself denies that because... By all accounts, even the people that were his lieutenants, that is Tony True and Joel Nechitenji, Mandela was always there. He was hands-on, sometimes maddeningly so, in that he really wanted to make sure that the vision that he had was realized. I've uh, heard from some of his close friends saying that he also had a maddeningly ability to micromanage affairs of state. Well, that came from his preoccupation with ensuring that the new democracy succeeded. Sometimes he made mistakes, for instance, when he wanted to a certain extent pander to the youth, to the very, very young people. And, you know, he had a very soft heart for young people. When he wanted to reduce the voting age to 12 or to 14, I'm not sure exactly when. And of course, uh, he was really, really, really uh, resisted on that. And when it was quite clear to him that he had made a mistake, he was gracious enough to say that I've been proven wrong and I accept it. Apparently, one of his most senior aides in government, Jake Scherville, said that Mandela in some sense was inadvisable. Uh, rather than this being arrogance, he would make a political call based on his intuitive sense for timing. Hmm. Is that right? That's right, and sometimes that worked, and sometimes that didn't work. For instance, the advisability that comes to mind immediately is when he really lashed out at Sani Abacha uh, after the hanging of the protesters, the Ogoni... Oh, Sani Abacha, the Nigerian dictator. Nigerian dictator, yeah. dictator yes where he then hanged people like Ken Sarowiwa, the writer. And Mandela really, really let rip 
which of course created huge problems in terms of diplomatic relationships between Nigeria and South Africa. The two African powerhouses. Absolutely. And there had to be a lot of work behind the scenes to try and mend that. Manda, let's take a listen to your second musical choice, please. The second track is by Letambulu, Not Yet Uhuru. This is a song that tracks the dissatisfaction, perhaps, with some of the developments that have taken place in the new South Africa. The fact that whilst all of us can rightly claim to be free, to have a democratic state, there's still a very, very huge underclass that does not see this as Uhuru. That was Letta Mbulu with Not Yet Uhuru, the choice of my guest on People of Note, Manda Langer, who has written the sequel to Long Walk to Freedom entitled Dare Not Linger. Manda, you write somewhere in the book that South Africans can now never hear the word reconciliation without associating it with Nelson Mandela. In, in some ways, the government of national unity that was formed after the 94 elections was a necessary evil to try to achieve reconciliation. Did Mandela ever confide his true feelings about sharing power with his erstwhile enemies? He does, in the book, in uh, Dare Not Linger, speak about his reservations or some of the misgivings he has about some of the people that he finally was forced into a marriage with. Mm -hmm. You will see, for instance, how he felt about F.W.T. Clerk, the fact that the Clerk had throughout their relationship 
been very afraid of going for broke, really, and pulling ahead and taking along with him the rest of, especially the Afrikaner population, which was still, to a very large extent, caught up in fearing the future. Mm -hmm. He did had not really acted as a a real leader. That comes through in in the book. So what was his personal chemistry like with F.W. de Klerk, away from the public spotlight? I think he tried as much as possible to ensure that there would be a relationship with de Klerk. Hence, even at the very beginning, he was brave to call him a man of integrity, a man he could do business with, which are not just nice-sounding phrases for Mandela. He didn't make easy admissions when it comes to things that could rebound on him. But privately, there were things that really frustrated him about de Klerk. His widow, Grasa Marshall, says to me that Mandela was very conciliatory in public because he felt that he could not humiliate leaders, especially leaders with a constituency like de Klerk or even uh, Prince Boutelezi, mm-hmm. because he felt that they represented a certain power, a certain following. But privately, he would then be able to, you know, really sometimes speak very, very, very strongly when he was dissatisfied. But, but this, this is all behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. Yeah. But all that, to my mind, came to all bets were off after the National Party pulled out mm. of the government. Of, yeah. of, I, I want to ask you about that in a moment. But what I'd like to know, was there any sign in Mandela's notes that he resented sharing the Nobel Peace Prize with F.W. de Klerk? In his conversation with Grasa Marshall, yes, he does. He was really even beginning to listen to some of the advice that he must not share the Nobel Prize jointly or, or accept it jointly with de Klerk. And of course, there was also a an example before with Kissinger and Ledoc too, mm-hmm. with the resolution of the Vietnam War. But Mandela felt that he was accepting this prize, not for Nelson Mandela, but for the people of South Africa. Right. And for him... Every gesture he made, everything every, he made in public or he said in public was aimed at being a contributory block towards this building of his, towards the, the edifice of democracy. How much of a setback did Mandela view F.W. de Klerk's decision to take the National Party out of the government of national unity? Well, it began to be clear for him that the withdrawal of the National Party from the government of national unity, number one, spells a disaster in the sense that he could no longer speak of unity and a creation of a state that is cohesive, that has got everyone on board. Mm -hmm. Because, as I've said earlier, he sees people as being representatives of constituencies. And so when de Klerk pulls out, 
this sends signals to a very, very large majority of DICLEC supporters that perhaps this thing is not working. And Mandela was, was unhappy with that. But he felt that somewhere in the book I do make the point that he believed in going somewhere with those who were willing to get on the bus. And so if the clerk then decided to get off the bus, that was it. The bus still had to, had to move on. Did Mandela express frustration at any stage with what he might have viewed as resistance to change in nation-building by white South Africans? Oh, yeah. I mean, that has always been in exhorting white South Africans to be part of the change. He has also pointed out that there was, there has been that resistance. But going back to even the question of de Klerk himself, he saw people not as monolithic, though, because even with the National Party, there were some of the people like who later possibly left even the National Party, Beck Botha, mm-hmm. for instance, who, whose talents Mandela recognized. And so he saw this uh, loss as a loss of that talent. And then he had to find a way of working to make sure that this was brought back into the government. In the book, he does speak about the fact that there was a lot of resistance to change. Hence, he is going to speaking to P.W. Porter to make sure that he corrals his forces, he corrals his supporters to bring them onto mm. the fold. He was aware of that. Mandela, time for another music break. What do you have lined up for us? I've got the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want, which for me is a, a track that represents a certain time for me when I was in exile and uh, finding myself liking the music, liking the message, and at the same time also finding in the message an inadvertent exhortation for the people of South Africa that we might fight and we might want to create a world like this, but it might not always come out the way you wanted it. And I guess uh, Nelson Mandela must have also hummed it from time to time when (laughs) he was dealing with some of the very intractable issues here in South Africa. Let's take a listen.
she was gonna meet her connection at her feet was a footloose man you can't always get what you want you can't always get what you want you can't always get what you want but if you try sometimes you might find One of the Rolling Stones' most famous numbers, you can't always get what you want. The choice of my guest on People of Note, the poet and author, Mandela Langer. Mandela, how candid was Mandela in his notes about what he may have identified as his own failings as president? Mm. He does speak to moments when he could have done things better. Like what? Like differently. For instance, when it came to when Kwasazana Lamine Zuma, uh, who was then Kwasazana Lamine at the time. Mm. She was uh, health minister. She was, she was a health minister. Health minister. When she got involved in the debacle of Sarafina, which got to uh, start giving the world or the people or commentators a feeling that this is what can be called corruption creep. Mandela was unhappy about the way this got resolved. But he was caught up in not wanting to do away with a minister who was young and was full of promise. So these were some of the mm. of, of the areas. Yeah. Because she 
actually offered to resign over the debacle around Serafina too, and, and Mandela declined. He declined, offer. yes. He declined because if it had come from him, if he had been the one that had initiated the resignation, then it would have been different. Mm-hmm. But he felt that uh, he is losing the kind of talent that mm-hmm. he needs you know, in the new democracy. But the flip side of the coin is he was seen to be soft peddling on the issue of corruption, and this opened him to accusations that he was allowing corruption on his watch. That, And, of course, that is when he started to have a less conciliatory relationship, for instance, with the media, and he started to lash out quite a lot against uh, some of the commentators. These were some of the areas where he himself does admit that he felt uh, he could have handled things uh, differently. What about his handling of the growing AIDS crisis? At first he was, uh, because the AIDS crisis came into play during his presidency. And for a while, I think he listened to people who possibly gave him wrong advice on the way forward on how this thing could be handled. AIDS was a very political issue. Uh, People must remember the coming into play of the drugs, the pharmaceuticals, and uh, Virodin, I remember that. And so Mandela was caught up in that. But much later, it will be remembered that uh, he became the world's best champion of uh, the treatment and also disclosures because a lot of people who were still, AIDS was still being kept, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in, in the dark, uh, people who would not disclose. Mm-hmm. And so he went right ahead when one of his sons passed on. Yeah. But did he have any personal recriminations about not doing enough when he was in a position to do so? I haven't come across anything in my research and also in the in the archives of Mandela feeling that he might have handled things wrongly, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to some of these uh, areas like AIDS, etc. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that he did have moments of real uh, regret that certain things had not been done as forcefully as they might have been done. For instance, he did want to champion the question of education, the question of building of schools, going and using his own resources to build schools or to get industry to work towards that Mm -hmm. in the rural areas as a person that came from one of the most depressed provinces in the Eastern Cape. But that was not functioning, continuing with the vigor and uh, at a pace that was satisfactory to him. Manda, your final piece of music, what do you have for us? My final piece of music is uh, Huma Segela, The Union of South Africa. Now, for me, this is a very personal piece in the sense that it held us together from the time when I was still a student 
at the University of Fortel, all the way into exile and all the way back. It's for me the music I use to write with. Uh, Huma Segala right now, as we know, is not very well. He's mm. not doing very well. And for me, I think that... Because you uh, wrote a musical with him. I wrote a musical with him, yeah, Milestones. Yes. And I feel that uh, he's somebody that has contributed immensely to the new South Africa. And uh, in fact, he wrote uh, another song, which can't be played today, uh, Bring Back Nelson Mandela, which uh, mm-hmm. was very important. So, yes. Well, let's hear the Union of South Africa. Oh, 
Hugh Masekela's The Union of South Africa, the choice of Mandel Langer, our guest on People of Note. And Mandela is the author of Dare Not Linger, The Presidential Years of Nelson Mandela. Mandela, as we mentioned at the outset, one of your brothers, Pius Langer, went on to become Chief Justice of South Africa, an elevation to one of the highest offices in the land that the so-called Mandela miracle made possible for black people. What is your personal assessment of what Mandela was able to achieve after having pored over the documents of his presidency in such detail? Mm. I think Mandela must have felt a certain sense of achievement, a certain sense of satisfaction when he looked, when he looks back on what had been achieved in South Africa. Number one, he had averted a possibility of a conflagration of a wasteland. Secondly, he had put South Africa on the world map in a manner where no new democracy had been. And uh, South Africans the world over walked with their heads held high and their shoulders braced, ready to take on anything. And there were all sorts of coincidences with Mandela's presidency, some of them cultural, for instance, Bafana Bafana winning the, the CAF and the, the rugby, South Africa coming, you know, all those. Mm. But much more importantly, and I think this has to be said, his sense of having created a real lasting democracy with all the institutions towards that. Because I've, I've heard some people suggest that he in fact was more obsessed with making democracy stick than racial reconciliation, which became effectively the byword of his presidency. Yeah, racial cohesion was a byproduct of that democracy that, that sticks. Without it, there would have been, uh, all of us would have been at each other's throats because we would find no amity, no possibility, no central focal point around which to rally. And Mandela created that. What do you think Mandela would have made of the political crisis currently engulfing the ANC, which has ultimately infected the workings of government? Mm. I think he would have been very disappointed. I think he would have seen this also as part of a trajectory the growing pangs of a democracy. He would have seen the 23 years as being part of a small uh, percentage of the 300 years that have brought us to where we are today. But he would have been very displeased with some of the players, especially people in, 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 in leadership positions, because he would have felt that they've let the side down. Do you think any of today's leaders could stand up to the standard set by Mandela? I do not think so. I do not think so. I think that uh, today's leaders in the main, leaders in the ANC, 
who were given a chance of ascent to those stellar heights really let themselves down and 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 by that they also let the country down Mandel Lange many thanks for joining us on today's people of note thank you people of note on fine music radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions well hello i'm Alan Committee and you can currently find me at the theater on the bay in Camps Bay as i entertain the crowds in my latest hilarious stand-up extravaganza planet mirth this show is a docu comedy and takes a gleeful look at everything in high definition it's funnier than an alistair could see a press conference and by the end you will be crying with laughter which means you can gather all your tears take them home and water your gardens it's a pleasure so don't miss alan committee planet mirth theatre on the bay mm-hmm.